welcome to Green and Red, Scrappy Politics for Scrappy People, a regular podcast on radical, environmental and anti-capitalist politics, brought to you by Bob Bazanka and Scott Parker. My parents grew up in the Permian Basin Petro Patch. My dad lived in a small town called Big Spring. When I was little, we would go back there every year for the holidays. I always thought that it was a funny name because it wasn't that big to me. It was also strange because we couldn't drink the faucet water either. Every so often, I'd forget and take a big gulp from the tap and gag from the awful taste. My mom grew up just a few miles away in a farming community of Forsan. She was a cheerleader for the high school and their mascot was the buffalo. We used to drive through Forsan on our way to Big Spring and I always knew when we were getting close because the air started to stink like a bad fart. Me and my brother would try to hold our breath we drove past the stench. Sometimes I'd get headaches and start to feel nauseous, but my mom said it was because I was holding my breath. My parents eventually left West Texas to make a better life and start a family in the Petro Metro. They bought a house in East Houston just off of Telephone Road and just a few miles from Buffalo Bayou. I didn't think too much about it when I was a kid, but I grew up in a city with the largest concentration of refineries and petrochemical facilities in the world. Every morning, I wipe the dew and oily residue off the car windows with a paper towel. There was a little bayou by my house. That was my only connection to nature but I never got to go on camping trips with the boys club like my dad did as a kid. Today, I'm an organizer and an advocate for environmental justice for all of the young children still holding their breath. All right, folks, welcome to the Silky Smooth Sounds of the Green and Red podcast. And that was a a short bio of our guest today, Brian Paras, who I'm going to introduce in a a more substantial way here in a minute. But uh, this is Scott Parkin, uh, once again, in the lovely Bay Area, as spring is beginning to spring. And as always, I am joined by Uh, Bob Bazanko of Houston and of Ohio. And as always, we want to thank you for uh, listening and watching, and we really appreciate it. And as always, we am asking, pleading, begging, and imploring you to share uh, our podcasts and our videos and any other information that's out there. We rely on the kindness of, uh, well, I won't call you strangers. We we consider you part of the Green and Red Gang. Uh, but, you know, anything you can do to to share, retweet, post this stuff, tell your friends about it. Uh, we have on great guests. I'm really excited about today's show. I think Brian and I have crossed paths many times before, but I'm not sure we formally met. And uh, he and his father are really well known and 
widely respected in the Houston area. And um, so we have people on who really need to be heard by as many folks as possible, especially given the, the systemic, various systemic crises we're, we're facing today. So please help out, share. Uh, we have a Medium page. We're on YouTube. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. We're everywhere. Instagram. And, yep. And we are we are taking on big, big left podcasts. That's not who we are. They, in fact, uh, you know, we, we do stuff on this show. And then three, four months later, somebody like in New York does the same thing. And everybody is just amazed at how brilliant it is. And we did that. Like, and we did that last fall, you know, so help us out. Yep. And uh, if you even have a few extra dollars to help us out, you can donate to the Green and Red podcast. Uh, you can go to our Patreon page, which is patreon.com backslash green red podcast. Or you can make a one-time donation at greenandredpodcast.org, which is our fabulous website, and hit the support button and you know help us keep going. We have very little overhead, but we do have some overhead. As you've heard us say many times, we have a we have a, a brilliant editor who makes a lot of our shit happen, and we support him. And so please, please uh, donate to the Green and Red Podcast. And then today, for today's episode, we're very excited to be talking with Brian Paras. Uh, that was a, a short bio video that you just saw of Brian. Brian is a organizer and longtime environmental justice advocate based in Houston, but you know, works throughout Texas and on the Gulf Coast. Uh, Brian is from the East End, uh, a Mexican American enclave in Houston, Texas. And he's the co-founder of Tejas, which is an acronym for Texas Environmental Justice Advocate, Advocate, Advocacy jumbling my words today, services. Uh, welcome to Green and Red, Brian. Hey, Scott, man, it's good to see you. And Bob, uh, I know I know we've met a couple of times in Houston too. Uh, it's awesome to be talking to some fellow Houstonians. Yep. Having me. Yep. And uh, just to kind of kick off, because, and, and the, actually the other thing I didn't say in the intro is that this is the third in a, a series that we've been doing around the, the Texas winter crisis the you know, in the last two weeks, we talked with Deb Russell and Clayton Lust about things that were going on on the ground in Houston and Austin. And we'll be doing more of that with Brian today. We talked about mutual aid. We talked a lot about the politics and the failure of the power grid. And then our second, our second episode in the series, we talked with Jamie Henn from Fossil Free Media about the, uh, we came from a, we came at it from a different angle and we talked about the corporate PR campaigns for the fossil fuel sector. Uh, when you heard Greg Abbott and Rick Perry complaining about socialism and the Green New Deal, uh, we, we talked to Jamie about the big oil spin machine. Um, but to kind of get started, Brian, you know, I, I, first question is, how are you doing? We know that the, you know, the storms caused a lot of havoc and they caused a lot of havoc in the communities in which you work. I know that there's still people in Texas and Houston who are still without water, without clean potable water. And so, and I know that you've, you know, just talking with you earlier this week, you've actually still been doing things like water delivery. And I'm just wondering if you could talk about that a little bit, how you're doing, how the communities you work with are doing. Well, that's the perennial question. Uh, if you live in Houston these days, it's like, how are you doing? And, you know, it's become like a, a mantra uh, every morning, it's like, how am I doing? How am I doing? How am I doing? Um, what am I doing? <laughs> what am I doing? Yeah. And uh, what should I be doing? Um, I'm, I'm in a better place, of course. 
than uh, than most folks. I, I was without power, and luckily, uh, you know, it came it came back on. I think I was out for about thirty six hours, and it was uh, it was it was an interesting, you know, storm because it's it's a new type of storm that most most folks who live here um, have never seen or lived through. And, and we're in a city that's just in a state, really, you know, large majority of the state. But Houston in particular, that's not prepared for several days of freezing weather. Um, the infrastructure um, and people's homes um, and, and just the, you know, the, the understanding of how to live through situation like this is is not part of our <laughs> um you know memory or um practice so i think uh i think we've all learned a great deal um and unfortunately you know those folks who should know um who did know and were in positions to plan and prep for for this on on our behalf failed spectacularly um, to the loss of, I think, 50 now, uh, 40 to 50 deaths just in Houston alone. Um, and as these disasters um, happen, you know, from, from personal experience of living through many storms, that number will grow. And I think a lot of people will leave us um, due to, you know, indirect causes from the storm, you know, stress, added stress, um, and inability to um, seek, seek help um, or get help, um, et cetera. So that's, uh, that's kind of the situation. And, and still folks, you know, are without water uh, for various reasons, um, and not just drinking water, but water to bathe, to wash their clothes, to flush their toilets, you know, to brush their teeth, all of the things that we use water for. Um, so it's it's weird. Like uh, you know, Harvey was a, a rain event, um, and and water water seems to be an omnipresent sort of figure in these in these disasters that we've been experiencing. And so you know, I think I think folks are are thinking about a lot. Um, and, and it's a bit overwhelming because we're still in the time of COVID. And, you know, we are also um, in time of, you know, high unemployment rates, um, housing crisis. Houston's got, you know, thousands and thousands of uh, evictions and hearings. And even with the CDC moratorium, those evictions have proceeded and a large majority of them, you know, have been approved. So groups like Texas Housers, um, there's a, uh, a tenants union um, coalition forming, you know, are, are all fighting to try and help folks uh, stay in their homes. And, and that, that came, you know, um, on top of this winter storm um, and now has created even more uh, tenuous situations because it's renters who are also at the mercy of the landlords for fixing broken, busted pipes, right? So there was an apart a whole apartment complex on the news the other night um, that uh, that had no running water, and they organized and they said, "We're not going to pay rent till you 
<laughs> so you fix the water. Um, but for folks that are on their own, right, they're renting homes um, or their complex is not organized, you know, they are, they are at the mercy of the land owners. And many are using this as an opportunity, you know, to evict folks um, or get rid of them, not by legal means, but by sheer um, draconian, unhumanitarian practices of refusing to provide water to their tenants. And for marginalized communities and already vulnerable communities like the undocumented, you know, they, they really have very little uh, bargaining power in these situations. Um, so, you know, that's, that's just one additional aspect of this, of this storm that I think is important. Um, and it's why aid is, is so necessary. Um, but oftentimes, you know, governmental aid is not available to undocumented communities. And we have a large population of undocumented people living here in the state that are exploited every day, right? And, and now they can't even receive help. So the mutual aid support is very important. And, you know, mutual aid, like genuine mutual aid that comes with no strings attached. You don't have to come to my congregation. You don't have to, you know, be a anti, anti LGBTQ. You don't have to, you know, sign these things that you won't use this for X, Y, Z, like just genuine support for your fellow um, human, right? And, uh, and, and those, those are happening, you know, individuals and groups, uh, collectives, are are doing what they can to support um and uh it's it's really beautiful you know to see and and a lot of groups that emerged last year with all of the protests related to um george floyd and race relations um and even you know support for vanessa guillen here in houston you know a lot of these young folks who were organized around those Socio-political issues are are learning. <laughs> they're learning. They're getting smart, and uh, and they're putting what they've learned, you know, into practice. So, I uh, I'm hopeful, and I think that uh, it's it's beautiful um, to see. But there's there's just so much more that needs to be done. Another news item in which I saw in that related to marginalized communities and, and vulnerable communities is when the when the winter storm hit that a lot of the petrochemical complexes and the refineries had to shut down because the power was going out and things like that. And that results in flaring, which results in like additional pollutants being released into the air. And you know, the communities live in next and we're and I have some questions about just the kind of EJ work in general, but do you want to talk a little bit about the the impact of like the plants getting shut down? It's also, it seems like it happens when, you know, we have tropical storms and hurricanes and things like that hit Houston as well. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, a very routine aspect of, of people's lives that live along, you know, the Houston ship channel and near all of these uh, industrial facilities, um, including refineries, chemical plants, um, storage tanks, pipelines, rail yards, and, you know, maritime vessels, like all of that, all of that is, you know, creating situations where 
folks are, are vulnerable um, in moments like this because they're forced to shelter in place, right? They're forced um, to stay home and, and they're not equipped with the tools to protect themselves um, for the large scale emissions that happen during these events. Um, and so we saw some of the same things that happened during Hurricane Harvey that made, you know, international news um, happen again. And they happened with, you know, the law on their side as the governor, you know, allows environmental regulations to be, you know, circumvented um, because this is an act of God um, and, and, and so on, right? And so we saw, I think, a fourfold increase of emissions, but that number comes to us from industry itself, right? These are self-reported numbers it's all it's all voluntary in texas right <laughs> so this is what they you know feel comfortable sharing with us um and oftentimes it's hard to counter um, whatever narrative that uh, industry tells us because you know the data is also compromised so i think 14 monitors here in the houston area were shut down during the storm um and so I don't know if they froze or not, you know, they didn't they didn't have any hoopla about the <laughs> the frozen monitors like they did with the windmills. Um, but, uh, you know, certainly that skews our ability to understand the full impact of these emissions on communities living nearby. Um, but I certainly witnessed, you know, flaring for days um, and not clean burns, but dirty burns. Um, for example, Texas Petrochemical, which often, often has uh, flaring events, um, was just spewing, you know, black smoke over the community of Allendale. Um, and as the winds shift, you know, the community changes, but the toxic chemicals remain the same, right? So as the wind shifts north, then it goes to Manchester. Um, if, it, if it shifts a little um, west, then it... it hovers over Magnolia and Second Ward. And if it's due north, then you have uh, emissions over Manchester, but also Galena Park, Clinton Park, you know, all of which are communities of color, um, low-income, Black, and Latinx communities living in homes that are, you know, made to breathe because <laughs> they, were, they were built, you know, in a very hot and humid environment. And so many homes are pure and beam um, and they're meant to breathe, right? To respirate the air, to get the air flowing um, so that it uh, is, is comfortable and you can control um, the temperature. But, uh, but that allows then for these chemicals, you know, to also travel through the walls and the floors um, and the windows. Um, and many folks that have air-conditioned units um, do not have central air, they have window units. I got a window unit right here. Um, and so that is another way that, uh, you know, the pollution from the outside makes its way in. It's also a way that the cold from the outside makes its way in, um, which is why, you know, people have died in this storm from hypothermia. Um, like the young, the young uh, seven-year-old boy that died in the trailer home, um, suspected of hypothermia, um, Christian, 
Um, and, and I know there's been other reports in the Houston Chronicle, um, sadly, of, of people, you know, dying of, of hypothermia in their homes, you know, in their homes, which I imagine sounds really weird for folks up north. Um, that, that that would be so regular, but but maybe not. I don't I don't know. Like I said, this is so new um, for us. I mean, I'm in Houston. It's like subtropical climate uh, most of the year, mm-hmm. and and we're we're accustomed to like a cold front coming and staying for a day or two, and then leaving, and then you're back in your shorts and your sandals, right, sweating it out the next day. Um, so the uh, the awareness, um, the preparedness, um, and and the lack of like understanding of, of how to be ready and act in the moment um, for this storm, I think caught a lot of uh, a lot of us off guard. Uh, yeah, I'm kind of the typical Yankee who, for 20 years in Houston, has teased and made fun of people. You know, <laughs> when it's 60, they put winter coats on, but obviously, like. You know, the whole idea of the entire grid going down was inconceivable. And, and, you know, I think the whole country now is aware of ERCOT and the lack of regulation. But I don't think people understand that's the tip of the iceberg, because after Harvey, I I did a bunch of media. And so I learned, you know, there are like 500 petrochemical plants on the coast that just got slammed. Mm. And Abbott didn't even not regulate them. He actually took away what little oversight there was. And so you now have organic peroxide and benzene and who knows what else like you had several years ago remember the explosion in west texas that place hadn't been inspected for like 30 years yeah and so if you want to talk a little bit just about like the the problem that the national media is talking about is actually just minimal compared to what's really there and it's obviously disproportionately affecting poor and especially non-white neighborhoods yeah yeah i mean there will be a mass casualty event if this industry is allowed to regulate itself, um, if it's never held accountable, and if things stay the same. That will happen. That will happen. Um, the infrastructure, not just of the, of the, the water systems and the electrical grid, but the oil and gas infrastructure is getting hit with the same you know, storms, right? So we had the flooding, we had wind from Ike, we've had freezing temperatures. And these are all structures that are decades old, 30, 40, 50, 60. Some plants are over 100 years old. And they've refused to upgrade them because that would force them to then follow newer environmental regulations, right? Um, so they have, by choice, chosen to allow things to explode, um, catch fire, leak, spill, etc., cetera, um, because that's, that's an economic decision and a strategic decision that they have made at the expense of the communities, you know, that live next door. Um, and, and, you know, sadly... Those, those are the indirect uh, casualties, you know, that, that I think about, um, that I, you know, organize over and uh, communities that I, I try and advocate for. And I'm one of those communities. I'm, I'm four miles away from 
the Houston Ship Channel, um, just at the beginning of this massive uh, industrial complex. And I've been that far away from this industry, you know, my, my entire life. I've lived in different places in the city, but always within that, you know, uh, radius. Um, Cause that's, that's my body. All right. This is, this is uh, the, the hood that I know. These are my people. Um, and it's, uh, it's, this is my Houston, second ward, Gulf Crest, Reveille, Magnolia, um, Eastwood, you know, and uh, often, often referred to as the greater East End, um, but also, you know, communities on the north side of, of the Ship Channel too, like Denver Harbor, North Shore, um, Clinton Park, Jacinto City, you know, all of these places are similarly situated and also, you know, part of the the community and the culture um, that makes up the the East End. You know, it's the the striking thing is I when I lived in Houston, I worked in Pasadena for a while, many mm-hmm. for many years teaching at San Jacinto College, part time at night, and then also when I've since I've moved to California, but I I come back and I work capacity and I've done a, a toxic tour like a Tejas takes people on these toxic tours around the East End around the Ship Channel, which. I highly recommend for anyone in our audience who's traveling to Houston, who's not from Houston. We actually have a lot of listeners in Houston. So even you're in Houston, you should do it too. Um, <laughs> but the, you know, one of the striking things is, is that you'll be there and there'll be like a petrochemical plant and then there's a refinery and then there's like a block of people's homes in between. And it's just the, uh, I saw an interview, I think when the, when the cold snap kicked in from Robert Bullard, which is like, who, and he said that I pulled the quote for today. It's like, that's the inequity that's piled on top of the inequity. Mm. Right. And so like, not only are folks being disproportionately hit in their daily lives by just, you know, low income people of color um, and having to live next to these complexes these oil and gas complexes, but then also, you know, when the, when these disasters hit, then it's like, they're the last to recover or they're the last to give, be given relief. Right. And that's why it's three weeks later and there's still people without water, <laughs> like yeah. water to flush their toilet with. And I mean, it's more than the disasters, you know, like if you drive out there, like, you know, years ago, I was going to see some fights in Texas City. As soon as you get near, you smell it like when in your intro little video there, that's the part. <laughs> like, yeah, because I remember when I moved there, like you smelled it, you know, and and in addition to the big things that get national news, Allison or Ike or Harvey or whatever. Like there's a, a flood, what, twice a year? There's an explosion once a year. A few years ago, I got, you know, I flew in on there. I forget what happened that day. And as soon as the, the plane landed and they opened the door, it hit me, you know? Yeah. So, and and that was at the airport, which is not near, you know, that area where, you know, on the coast where, where these plants are. So I don't, people understand just how overwhelming this is, like, I won't drink tap water anymore. And I live in Montrose, you know? Mm. Yeah, no, it's uh, that, that quote from Bullard is uh, very, very poignant. And, you know, it's, it's insult upon insult, right? So the grid failed in large part because of the, the over-reliance on fossil fuel infrastructure um, that, that refused to, (laughs) you know, even, plan for a freeze. Um, And then, you know, you had folks 
dying from the emissions of gasoline powered generators, um, you know, from the carbon monoxide poisoning um, and uh, communities living along the ship channel having to breathe in these flared, you know, emissions that ran for days. They're still going. They're coming back online now, right? These are like S SSM shutdown startup malfunctions, they call them. Um, but they're totally planned, right? And and the idea is that like we have to flare, this is what industry says, we have to flare or there will be a catastrophic explosion, you know, and the mass casualty event that I that I, you know, said will will happen if, if uh, industry is allowed to continue without any regulations or accountability um, and, and enforcement. Um, but that's what ERCOT said, right? Like after all the negative press and people being upset, what did they say? They said, well, we avoided, you know, a catastrophic shutdown um, by four minutes. And they even had the seconds like, wow, you guys are like, you can you can measure things really accurately like you got it down to the second but you didn't know that the whole grid was going to freeze up and you didn't know that if you didn't weatherize all these facilities that this would happen you didn't know you know it's uh <laughs> it's insulting it's insulting you know through this series I, I mean, I lived in Houston for a long time and I've done environment. I lived in Houston for a long time. I haven't lived there. It's been a while since I've been lived there. But like, and yeah. then, and then, you know, looking at ERCOT and looking at like what Abbott's just done in the last year, like, you know, allowing them to like abolish the oversight division uh, in one of, now I'm blanking on which one, on one of the state agencies, right? Or they they cut the contract of the entity that's responsible for regulation or, turning regulation into like a, a you know it's only mandatory it's only voluntary for industry it's just like it's it's sometimes it's just baffling to me how much they think they can just insult well, our intelligence you, you don't even need to list like what kind of you know toxic chemicals are in there so if the police if uh like the fire department or emts go in they have no idea what they're running into i mean all of this stuff yeah. is is you know you, there's no public mandate to disclose what's in there so you know, if you're a fireman going into this, you have no idea what's what's in there. It's just, I mean, it's, you know. Think of this. The energy capital of the world, world. had a total blackout yep. for a week. Yeah. I think they've just been stripped of their, their you yeah. know. I, I have a friend who worked in Saudi. <laughs> I have a friend who worked in Saudi Arabia for three years, and he said they are stunned. And just like how utterly incompetent and useless the state of Texas is there. They couldn't believe it, you know, and these guys, you know, the Saudis for Christ's sake, that's pretty bad when they're like looking down on you morally, you know? <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's a complete like a, uh, like moment of awareness that they care zero fucks about the people here and sorry for cussing but i know this is a podcast and you know it's, it's we've actually was, came with our language with you today so there were there were like privileged people in west houston in the energy corridor with like buckets and pails like getting water from the little creeks there 
so that they could flush their toilet. <laughs> yeah. It's like, wow, yeah. wow. I'm, I, <laughs> I probably... hope they're pissed. I hope they're as pissed as we are. Because what we've said is what's happening on our side of town, it's coming. It's coming to yeah. your side of town. We're all connected. It's all tied together. The weather is not going to just, you know, stay on the east side of Houston and just impact, you know, poor black and brown folks. It's coming. And boy, did it come this time. So, Scott, do you want to uh, tell all of our listeners and viewers how to learn more about the Green and Red podcast and how to support us? Thanks for listening to the Green and Red podcast, folks. If you want to follow us on social media, please check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Please go to our YouTube page and hit subscribe. And then if you want to become a donor or just make a one-time donation, to make a one-time donation, go to greenandredpodcast.org and hit the donate link. And then to become a, a regular donor or what is known as a patron, please go to patreon.com forward slash greenredpodcast and join the, the large and growing donor base that we have. Thanks. You, you mentioned people were pissed, and that's one of the questions I had. Like, in the immediate aftermath, I sensed fury that I had never seen, like, at Harvey or at Allison or anything else. Yeah. Um, is that still there? Are people still, like, you know, like, there was a pop. I'm like, I was waiting for people with pitchforks to march on, you know, Abbott and Cruz's house. Is that still there? Are people still, like, really? And it's, yes. this wasn't the usual suspects. Yeah. This was yes. more than just, like, people like us. It was like people who were generally not political or moderate, and they were like furious. So, well, well like you said, like like the River Oaks uh, women turning uh, yeah. Cruz, Cruz and his family, like just throwing them under. Yeah. The yeah. <laughs> like folks are pissed, but you know this this state um, has had decades of building infrastructure that makes that you know rage very hard to turn into action um you know you have to you have to get in your vehicle you have to drive 20 30 miles <laughs> to go you know express that outrage um and folks have to weigh that heavily against their own immediate needs um so you know that's that's the uh the paradox Right. And why it seems at times that that people in Texas don't care because there is infrastructure that has made it, you know, punitive to care. Like it's I'm going to go get water and food for my family at this free distribution site or I can go pick it in front of Cruz's house. Which one do you think people are going to to take? Yeah. Um, and, and, and that's, you know, the situation in normal times. Um, so we don't have time to, to be angry. We don't have time, you know, to, uh, to be engaged in the political process. Um, folks barely have time, you know, to, to survive and provide. Right. And, and again, that's why COVID has been so uh, devastating on these same black, indigenous, brown, and low-income working communities. It's uh, we're put on the front lines. Um, we're exposed to all the the dangers. Um, we're not protected. 
Um, the companies are, are given, you know, carte blanche to exploit us um, without any sort of remedy for the workers, like the meat packers, like the agricultural workers. And so, you know, all of those harms then get brought back to our community um, and, and, you know, and we're, we're dealt with all of that um, and have to, uh, you know, find ways to survive in the midst of it. So that's... <laughs> That's that's what's happening. You know, that's where we're at. And not just here in Houston, but, you know, across the country. You know, kind of speaking to that for a moment, I, I've heard, read recently that those communities that are in survival mode in the, where, like, honestly, I've heard called many times sacrifice zones. Uh, one of the things that the, you know, the, even though this is all aging infrastructure, the oil industry, you know, is still wanting to expand their operations, petrochemical operations, petrochem petchem is becoming a big thing uh, as there's a higher demand for things like plastic. And so they're moving into these communities, but, and then there's, there may or may not be consultation going on, but then the consultations also like, you know, these are Spanish speaking communities and yet like all the consultations in English. And yeah. I was just wondering if you could speak to that for a moment, because I, I think that's a, a kind of important thing to touch on yeah yeah do you have an example because I'm, I'm just curious yeah like is there an instance that you saw or read about that made you think about that uh sort of that's that's beyond greenwashing right like that's uh right <laughs> i don't have a i don't have a specific i could i could find one later but i don't yeah, have it it's pretty my fingertip right now yeah yeah but i think you know take take this moment for example you know water water's an issue um, and right now people are, are buying just shitloads of water bottles, right? Pallets and pallets of water bottles and giving them, um, to people. That's a bandaid, right? That's a bandaid. And it's also a bandaid that supports and propagates, you know, this oil and gas industry that then gives them a way of, you know, showing that they're needed, Right. It's like, oh, in times of emergency, you need water. We delivered all these, you know, little 12 ounce plastic bottles of water. And there's a photo of Ted Cruz putting bottles of water in people's Into trunks. his own car. <laughs> <laughs> or I think it was cops cars, right? He did both. He went to a police station. That was his form of mutual aid to, uh. to protect blue lives. Yeah. <laughs> but but that's like, you know. If, if, if I was going to, you know, be a, a, a marketing person, right. And spin this, like that would, that would be my story. Um, but we have to look at the root causes of the situation. Um, and we also have to look at ways of challenging even, even the rapid response process, right? Like that's just inefficient. It's wasteful and it, it does like nothing to help folks um, that want to bathe, wash their clothes. Like, can you imagine like pouring, how many <laughs> things of water do you need to pour into your machine? And like, once it drains, like, then you got to pour, like, it's just, yeah. it's ridiculous. Like, you know, what, uh... <laughs> what struck me is like, as soon as the water came back, all the um, car wash places were slammed, like freaking people. <laughs> That was their priority to let their fucking car washed, you know, oh. <laughs> I mean, like I, I, that may not, obviously they never 
got through like oh i'm washing my car and people don't have water to drink you know it's it's i think there's there's like psychological things that happen after storm two right that are really important for for people to to be mindful of uh to be compassionate about and i think like that like that's an expression of people wanting to go back to like normal whatever the hell that means right but it's a way of sort of stepping back into a routine that is uh therapeutic right in some really fucked up capitalistic way (laughs) but but it is for folks like it, it really does help them kind of uh feel like they are moving forward and, uh, car washing is an interesting like sociological <laughs> study because like i wash my car once a year whether i need it or not <laughs> but i've seen that like people who like like plan around getting their car washed you know and and with these you know when they re- talk about a waste of water you know yeah. but anyway that's just a, no, tar- I mean, there, a tirade there's, there's there's pride right and i think this is the uh <laughs> this is how deep our work is that yeah. people are so connected to their cars, right? That they're using limited supplies of water to wash it so that it's it's shiny and pretty, right? That that makes them feel better than having clean water and expecting clean water um, in their household, right? Even if it's for someone else's household, like that's, yeah, that's how deep the uh, the oil and gas industry and the culture, right? The petrol culture is in places like Houston, you know, and other places in the Gulf Coast. Um, and that's that's a lot harder, you know, to to talk about. It's a lot harder to pinpoint. Um, and sometimes it takes folks from the outside to like <laughs> notice those things <laughs> and 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 you know hopefully if we have a good attitude about it like to to think about it, it's like wow that that's true like that's that's pretty messed up <laughs> uh, what that makes me think of is uh, here in california right now uh, certain counties are open up uh indoor dining going back to indoor dining even though, you know, like Alameda County where I am is not going to because our numbers are still pretty bad. But like San Francisco County is opening up indoor dining at 25%. And that's, it's, it's a, I feel like it's a similar sort of thing. And in Texas, it's related to car, it might, it might be related to cars and oil and gas. Here, it's, I feel like it's like just this capitalist enterprise. And it's mindset is like, what's going to take us back to normal is to be able to sit inside a restaurant. Uh. <laughs> Well, yeah, you don't want people thinking about how bad things are. So go out to yeah. eat, wash your car. Yeah, um, spend, and spend I, money. Yeah. Let me ask you a question about aid, because a few weeks ago, we had Debbie Russell on talking about Austin, and I've been following um, the stuff there and in other Texas cities. And there are all these mutual aid networks. And, and I was so happy to hear you say that a lot of these were formed last year in the aftermath of George Floyd in the in the summer uprisings. And so they were ready to go, which is like, something Scott and I emphasize on this podcast every week, like the importance of, of organization. Um, and so that's, that's happening. I get the sense it's still happening, but I'm also, I've been getting updates. Uh, I, I went online and started following Lanny Hidalgo, who's the, the, the county judge. And I get the sense, it looks like they're doing stuff because every day there's a list of community centers or churches where you can get water, you can get food. And I guess even the Houston food bank doesn't ask for any, 
IDs or anything. They just like no questions asked if I'm if that's my understanding yeah. of it. Um, and so like, is there kind of has the 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 county stepped up and is it doing kind of, you know, what what like what's happening there, I guess, is just the basic point in terms of both mutual aid, private mutual aid, the kind of stuff you do and what the county or, or the city of Houston is actually doing. Yeah, I uh, I whew, I mean, it's a tough one because the county has been really, really strong at advocating for communities on, on the east side of Houston. Um, and there, there's been a lot of resistance from the two commissioners, you know, that represent the more affluent white sides of, uh, yeah. of the county. Ray, Radak is a son of a bitch. <laughs> so I don't know if you can say that, but I can. So, <laughs> and, and yet like the, the power balance is, is on the left, right? Yeah. Um, the so-called left, um, and and of course, like there could be ways of of uh, being stronger always, but I've been you know particularly impressed by Lena in particular at at her unwavering support right for very very important um, policy decisions um, and and so there's Lena that's the judge and then you have uh, Adrian Garcia and Rodney Ellis, Ellis, right? So you have kind of a interesting crew there, um, but that's that's enough votes to weigh some influence on the county, like huge, one of the largest counties, right? In the mm -hmm. country. Um, and like, that's, I think, work that the undocumented dreamers did um, to even raise raise the county as a possible pressure point for, for advocacy. Um, because when the, the first uh, anti-immigrant waves were happening, you know, and even under Obama um, with the mass deportations, um, but prior to that, you know, Bush, like youth were organizing and they identified the county as a place um, that had a lot of influence. And so they, they brought like the whole county structure to the attention of people. <laughs> and so without that groundwork, like you don't have people like, uh, like Lina Hidalgo, Adrian Garcia, um, yeah. and Rodney Ellis is in a, in a pretty, I think he's probably in the most secure seat. Um, but like Adrian's seat, you know, Sylvia Garcia used to have that just for, I think like one, one term. Um, so, there's a need for I think even the folks on the left to to measure their level of of support for progressive ideas um, because they could be voted out still. Yeah. Um, but one one thing that's amazing is like Lena has has proven to not care about that, and she's taken really bold, uh, made bold decisions um, that. Aren't, aren't always, you know, politically in her favor, but they needed to be done, right? So like her, her pushing Abbott at the state um, for mask mandates, right? Um, and all these things like, and man, that's what we need. We need more politicians to really push, push, push specifically on the left. Um, it's like, who's the nominee that just got, you know, 
who took herself off because of mean tweets. It's like, <laughs> really? Because of mean tweets? Um, You're that's attended. enough? Well, she, she's got a lot of baggage beyond that. So <laughs> I'm not going to shed any tears over here, her, but. Well, good. Um, but, but that was the narrative, right? Was right, like, right, 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 like right. It was a bit of a distraction. She's, she's actually an anti-left reprehensible neoliberal. So <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to shed any tears, you know, um, and I'm not trying to create like a competition, but AOC is a national figure. Lena Dago is the real deal. And I'm not into electoral politics, but, you know, on COVID, on masks, on, you know, restricting bars, uh, on voting, you know, she opened up. Um, so, you know, I think if people want to kind of look at a national figure, you know, I mean, AOC is one of 535. Lena Dago runs the second or third biggest county. And, and I, you know, generally I'm not easily impressed, but everything, you know, I mean, I just, she seems like the real deal. Last question I have though, um, is, is on actually like kind of COVID really, because mm -hmm. that's not going away. Um, it's particularly affecting um, poor communities, which is one reason why, you know, businesses and schools want to open because it's not really them who are getting slammed. Um, how, I mean, have you done, been doing work on that in your community? And what will Abbott's new reopening, what would it like less than 7% of Texas is vaccinated. I'm assuming that poor communities are going to be last in line for that. So yeah. um, how, I mean, there, you guys, I'm assuming in the work you do, COVID is still huge and it's, it's, you don't really see much light at the end of the tunnel yet. Yeah. Good, good question. And I'll say, you know, just one end note on, on Lena you know, it's it's impressive to see someone do what she's doing in a state like Texas, yeah. right? Like that's what we have all been sort of wanting. Um, so I hope more folks take her lead. Um, and then on COVID, you know, interesting you should say that because right before the storm, I was working uh, with another elected um, and this is a, a, a local state rep because I, I had read an article in the Houston Chronicle and they broke down all of the COVID infection rates and death rates according to zip code. And uh, when I read it, I was like, the zip code I live in that I grew up in, you know, was, was in the top 20. Um, but the death rate was, I think, second. And there were about 3,200 infections in my zip code and 46 deaths. So 46 people died of COVID-19 just in the zip code that I live in, that I grew up. Um, and and I, I asked myself like, what's going on? What's happening here? Um, and there's a lot of factors, right? It's working class, predominantly um, Latinx and um, essential workers mostly, um, multi-generational households, and one of the most polluted <laughs> places in the city too. Um, and we know that there have been uh, direct links to particulate matter in particular, no pun intended, um, and COVID-19, right? So so I reached out to my my representative because what we were also seeing at the same time was the lack of access to vaccinations for our communities. And that's 
for a number of reasons. Like I said, you know, um, one awareness, one availability, two um, language, right? Like <laughs> yeah. a lot of our population speaks Spanish. If you don't have specific leaflets and such provided to them in Spanish, then they're just not going to know. Um, and a lot of misinformation, right? That's been permeating, you know, the the country. And, and so all of those things make it extremely difficult uh, for folks to get vaccinated. And so I was actually helping build a list of people in my zip code um, to get vaccinated, um, working with, you know, one of my local reps. And that was that was in the works. And it was it was actually uh, that work that introduced me to a lady named Alice Torres, uh, who you can read about in the in the Houston Chronicle, because mm -hmm. she was helping us build on that list, and and she she was connected with a, a church off a telephone road called uh, Queen of Peace, and she herself is a COVID survivor, and and spent like six months, you know, in the hospital. Um, she lost her mother to COVID nineteen, um, but she's also a Harvey survivor, right? Okay. And I, uh, I went to visit her, you know, in the midst of the storm because she had this list and she was very adamant, like, <laughs> like getting these people, um, you know, the opportunity to get vaccinated. And so what we found is that there, there is definitely like a desire to get vaccinated in our community, um, but it has to happen um, and, it, and it should be coordinated by folks who are known and trusted in the community, you know, along the same lines as, as how mutual aid works, mm -hmm. um, working with trusted community leaders who, you know, are, are well-known um, and trusted. Yeah. And, and so that's, that's kind of what, what we've been continuing to do to build on uh, to try and get people vaccinated. Um, but, but there's so much more than just vaccination, right? And now that Abbott has gotten rid of the mask mandate, like we're, we're back to last year. And you everything's know, opened up 100%, right? And opened up 100%. Like we're, we're literally, like what he's doing is opening the floodgates for more conflict, right? For there to be fights now with people wearing masks, not wearing masks, you know, it's a distraction and sure. it's deliberate. Sure. Um, and it's going to kill people. Yeah. 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 Um, I just, I, I popped on it. There's a, an update from Bloomberg. Uh, a, an outside firm said that in two days, in the two days last month when the, the power was out, mm -hmm. um, the uh, power markets overpriced Texans by $16 billion in two days. $16 billion in extra charges. So... Can you imagine? But, but, six, but the officers are, are going after, you know, the, the price gougers for a bottle of water. Bottle of water and Dr. Seuss. You know, that's yeah. the problem. Yeah. Brian, this is one of my, I think, is this our 75th, Scott? 76. 76. Oh, we missed 75. But <laughs> this is one of my favorites already. I can tell you. I can't wait till it gets out there. Um, man, uh, this has been so eye-opening and so great. And people need to hear this stuff. And you do awesome work. And like I said, when I, you know, when things return to whatever level of normal there is, I'm gonna have <laughs> you to UH and you know, talk to talk to people on campus and talk to my classes. 
And um, I just like, you know, I really appreciate what you're doing and, and everything you told us today. Uh, this was just an awesome, awesome show. So thanks so much. I really appreciate, you know, for all the, all the good work you do. Yeah. Much appreciated. And if there's, is there any, um, do you want to tell people about like a link for Tejas or places where they can support? If not, we can just put them in our show notes too. Yeah. I actually, I actually started a GoFundMe with the help of a friend. Cause what I've learned too, is that in these moments of disaster, you know, when folks ask how they can help, give them something to do, <laughs> make sure that they help. Um, and, and I had this really gracious, um, beautiful friend, Jacqueline Garcia is in the Bay area. Um, she set up a GoFund for me so that I could, you know, raise funds. Um, what I've been doing is buying like pitchers, uh, water filters and stuff for folks and, uh, and, and building like just recovery kits, um, because I've been thinking about this, you know, and, and with my colleagues uh, at Another Gulf is Possible, like we've all been thinking about, you know, this this moment that we're all in and we're trying to, to implement ways of, you know, being prepared and protecting our communities. So, uh, so yeah, I'll share that with you. And of course, you know, support local grassroots organizations like Tejas, um, but, but also those that are, you know, um, and other other parts of the city that you might have personal connections to, um, you know, it's uh, it's important to to give back. Um, you you have a memory, right, Bob, of places in Houston, like you know some of the the dynamics and the difficulties. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of awesome black led organizations doing mutual aid work, um, and yeah. I know y'all mentioned a few in the last podcast. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so, you know, we put a huge list on our show notes for <laughs> <laughs> on both of our Texas episodes, the two, the first two. And, and also like, you know, support the, the places that are around you too. Right. Yeah. Like I know that there's uh, vulnerable communities, um, and disasters that are happening all over the country. So, you know, don't, don't chase storms, um, but, but work on building community and supporting efforts, you know, to, to have low-income communities ready, ready um, for that yeah. next one. Yeah, exactly. Uh, folks, you've been listening to Brian Paras, uh, environmental justice advocate and organizer in Houston, but all of, you know, works all over Texas and the Gulf Coast, uh, co-founder of Tejas and has been doing a lot of really important work like like you've been hearing about and that we all just said. Uh, and I wanna just real quick, uh, we're recording this on on March 5th and I just wanna um, throw out something is a, 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 a good friend of mine when I did, I did a lot of work, organizing work, campaign work in fighting mountaintop removal coal mining in Appalachia. And I, I met a lot of, uh, leaders in those communities, one of which was a, a guy named Larry Gibson, who actually unfortunately passed away too young uh, in 2012. Uh, but today is Larry's birthday. And so I just want to do a shout out to Larry. Uh, and, and Larry was, a you know, when no one was fighting the coal industry in the late 90s and in Appalachia and places like Southern West Virginia, there was Larry. He would go on a march with five guys across the state, get beat up by biners as they were walking out, as they were walking along because they were anti-coal. Um, you know, Larry built a movement. There was a, you know, 10 years ago, 
we saw this huge movement, which was resisting uh, coal mining in Appalachia throughout the region and other parts of the country. And so um, we've been talking today with Brian about Houston and the Gulf Coast, which is a you know one of the country's major energy sacrifice zones. Appalachia is another one. And I just want to like throw out a little bit of a tribute and remembrance of Larry today. Actually, uh, today is Presente. also the <laughs> It's also the eighth anniversary of the death of uh, Comrade Hugo Chavez. Uh, and as we see the Biden administration continue the same aggressive interventionist policies toward the people of Venezuela, uh, continuing sanctions, which are just brutal and deadly. Uh, you know, let's you know, look back to a time not that long ago when there was this solidarity uh, in the Latin American left. And, uh, you know, personally, it always goes back to Fidel's uh, observation, not a threat. It was an observation. Socialismo muerte. So. We're either going to have uh, socialism or barbarism. And I think right now we see what's happening. So anyway. I feel like Houston's got sanctions on the, on some of our communities too. It, it's that actually, it's it's like kind of internal colonialism, you know? Yeah, but uh, Viva Hugo Chavez. So. Presente. Presente. <laughs> All right, folks, uh, for Green and Red, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Subscribe to us on YouTube, this video interview with Brian will be on YouTube in uh, a few days. Check out our Medium page, Green and Red Media on Medium. Uh, and if you want to make a donation, go to our Patreon page and become a recurring donor at patreon.com backslash Green Red Podcast. Or you can go to our website, greenredpodcast.org and make a one-time donation. Just hit that nice little support button. It's been great talking to folks. Stay safe, be kind, and uh, watch out for each other. <laughs>